Well, a conspiracy, by very definition, is a, a secret plot by a group of people to carry out some evil or some crime. Um, we know that conspiracies exist. Um, there's, it's written into our penal codes about conspiracy to commit murder and other kinds of things. Um, typically speaking, the, the word conspire or conspiracy is a negative one, except in the Christmas song, Winter Wonderland. You know, Later on, we'll conspire as we dream by the fire. But by and large, it's a, it's a negative one. Um, conspiracies exist. But conspiracy theories, related but a little bit different. I can remember the first time that I was ever introduced to a conspiracy theory. Uh, I was in seventh grade. Uh, I had a Japanese teacher, and I believe his family actually was interred, um, his, his parents. And so he loved to teach us about World War II. Somehow, in the middle of his lectures on World War II, which I found extremely fascinating, he wanted to teach us or tell us or lay out for us the evidence for a second shooter on the grassy knoll and the assassination of JFK. Now, I have no idea why that made its way into my seventh grade curriculum, but I'm pretty sure, or I suspect that it was kind of a secret hobby of his, and he wanted to share with us seventh grade students what he had learned about this theory of a conspiracy to assassinate JFK. I don't remember much about seventh grade, but two things. One, I got in trouble a lot, um, so much so that my parents removed me from public school and put me in a private school for a year, which was way worse than public school, in my personal opinion. For me, personally. I'm not saying that for everybody. And the second one was, I remember, like yesterday, the grassy knoll. Right? It's interesting to me, from my limited life experience, um, conspiracy theories seem to be more along the margins of society. That is kind of fringe. And in the last year and a half, two years, I think we could say that they've mushroomed into the center, the current. Um, that was a conversation, people wondering what's going on in the world and trying to figure out what's behind it. A lot of conspiracy theories. Um, and I kind of have grown up with this kind of stuff, um, not so much, well, after seventh grade. Uh, I have a family member who to this day is, is adamantly um, confident that the world is run by a secret group of puppet masters called the Illuminati. And I have had long drag-out conversations, discussions, uh, with this particular individual, and, and it never goes anywhere. Um, so I've learned to keep my mouth shut, just wasted wind. Because, in my opinion, I quite frankly don't believe that people are smart enough, that humanity is cohesive enough, or that people are powerful enough to pull off a massive worldwide conspiracy. I don't. I don't think people are smart enough powerful enough, or cohesive enough. Now, why do I say this kind of interesting introduction about conspiracy theory, most of which I find unhelpful, but I say this because there is one. There is one who has the intelligence, the power, and the network to be able to pull it off. And he is not human. He is superhuman. And he's been around for thousands of years and has been a student of human behavior for thousands of years, which means he knows us. He knows how we work. He knows how we're tempted and how we respond to temptation. And that person comes to light in this chapter. 
chapter 12 of Revelation. In a manner of speaking, uh, these are visions that God has given to the Apostle John to share with us. Um, He's taking us behind the scenes of what we see with our physical eyes. Uh, You know, we live most of our life reading the newspaper or looking at politics or looking at movements and culture and what we see with our eyes is how we see reality. And chapter 12 is a really intriguing chapter because we're taken behind the scenes of what we see to what we can't see. And we are introduced to this character in symbolic form known as the dragon, who, as Leslie read, is referred to later in the chapter as the devil, which is simply a word that means slanderer, by the way. We tend to think of somebody with you know, a red suit and horns and a tail with a spike at the end with a, you know, a pitchfork. That's just a, well, caricature. Um, known as Satan, which is Hebrew word for um, the adversary, the adversary of God's people, or the serpent, the slithery, cunning serpent of the garden. So this chapter is about the dragon, which is about the devil. Um, taking us behind the scenes to see someone who has worked in history and to understand from our perspective as Christians that we need to be able to see deeper than just with our physical eyes. I think that's one of the things this chapter teaches us, to see the evil behind what we see. So there's three parts to this chapter that are about, that are about the dragon, and I'm going to call them three rounds, as in three boxing match rounds, you know, like ding, ding, and round one, ding, ding, round two about the dragon. And then I'm going to close with just some takeaways with this. The first round, verses 1 through 6, is the dragon versus the Christ child. The dragon versus the Christ child. John sees in this vision two great signs in verses 1 through 6. He sees a woman and he sees a dragon. The focus of the attack by the dragon is not the woman per se, but the child that she's pregnant with. And of course, the child is the birth of, of, the, of the Savior, of Jesus Christ, of, of, of the Messiah. So you have this woman and you have this dragon. The first thing he sees is this woman, and she's described as, you know, with sun and moon under her feet, and she has on her head a crown of 12 stars, and she's, of course, pregnant, and she's crying out in birth and pain and agony, getting ready to give birth. Now, who is this woman? This is, again, symbolic literature. Who do we understand her to be? I think there are two primary Old Testament texts that this, these verses, this picture is drawn from. In terms of her child that she's carrying, I believe there is a reference here to the very beginning of the Bible, and that is Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where in the context of judgment, the Lord comes into the garden finds out his, his Adam and Eve, his, his first king and queen, have been deceived, and he comes to the serpent and he curses him. And one of the things he says in the curse is, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. That's a fatal death blow. And you shall bruise his heel. This is God's way of saying to the serpent, to the dragon, to the devil himself, it's like, there's going to be someone who comes from this woman's offspring, who's going to slay you. Let's just call him a dragon slayer. Since he's called a dragon in Revelation 12, why not? So the, the woman in Revelation 12 is pregnant with this child, the dragon slayer. 
The second text, because again, I don't believe that this woman that's clothed in the sun is Eve, just the reference to her offspring or her child that she's carrying. But rather, there's a second text, and that is the dream that Joseph had in Genesis chapter 37, verse 9. Where he dreamed, he says, Behold, I, I have a dream, another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. This is the place where you find the sun, moon, and 11 stars, and counting Joseph, he would have been the 12th. This is a picture of, of the people of Israel, of the 12 tribes, who, through whom or from whom the, the nation of Israel would come. So this is a picture of the people of God. So, just kind of backing away here for a second to understand the image. This woman that John sees that has the 12 stars, this is, this is the people of God, through whom the Messiah would come, the people of Israel. But given the fact that the woman exists before the birth of Christ and also after, because the dragon pursues her, I believe this is the people of God under both Old and New Covenant. Therefore, in the Old Covenant, the people of Israel, New Covenant, people of the church. It would include Jewish people. So this woman is the people of God, through whom God would bring the dragon slayer. Then there's this other image that is given. The dragon. And he is uh, terrifying. At least to a first century person, it would be terrifying to hear this as another sign. Behold, in heaven, a great red dragon, a red, in the book of Revelation, often a symbol of blood, the red horseman went out, took peace from the earth, and people slaughtered each other. That was Revelation chapter 6. So there's going to be bloodshed. It's a dragon. He's destructive. With seven heads and ten horns, and on his head, seven diadems. Seven heads. Oftentimes, a head is a reference to a king or a kingdom. The idea being that while this supernatural being is in fact supernatural, he shows himself through kings and kingdoms that would oppress God's people through the centuries and through the millennia. The fact that he has ten, ten, or ten heads or ten crowns um, on his head, excuse me, seven heads and seven diadems and ten horns, again, a symbol of power and authority, albeit um, usurped authority. So here I have this, this picture of this, this dragon that has these heads or these kings or kingdoms that rise through history that attack God's people that have a tremendous amount of authority and power. But let me back up because you can kind of get lost in the weeds of symbols. If you were a first century person listening to this and you were in Asia Minor, which is the people to whom John was writing, many of whom were converted pagans, you grew up hearing stories about the fabled Hydra, right, this, this monster that comes from the sea with these multiple heads and extremely powerful and you, you chop off one head and it just comes back, just keeps coming back. Immediately, that's what they would have thought of. This is this symbol from Greek and Roman mythology of, of this Hydra character who can't be killed. And according to mythology, there was one who did. Hercules, born, right? He was made, able to kill the Hydra with sword and fire. It's a cheap knockoff version to the real thing. But that would have been some of the in images they would have understood. So you have this idea of a monster, perhaps, who you think it's dead and it just keeps coming back over and over again. 
Now, so that's, I think, the meaning of the two. And he's waiting. He's waiting before the woman who is about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Think about this for a second. Like, the serpent, the dragon, has been waiting for hundreds, thousands of years for the arrival of the slayer. What is he going to do? He's going to consume it. He's going to kill it as soon as it's born. Now, you don't find this story read at Christmas very often. Can you imagine sitting down with your, your three little ones going, we're going to do a Christmas story out of Revelation chapter 12. There was a woman who was pregnant with the baby Jesus, and there was this mighty dragon ready to gobble him up. That's, no, you don't hear that kind of story. But, boy, you get to see that behind the scenes, this was what was going on. I mean, Herod showed up on the scene. He gave the directive because he found out where the Christ child was going to be born. And he had every male, two and under, slaughtered in Bethlehem. Was it just the move, move of, a, of, a, of an insane or egotistical or jealous king? Yes, but more. Was this not one of the heads of the dragon showing itself to consume and kill Jesus Christ? I think so. Of course, he escaped. And you look at the whole of Jesus' life. He was constantly under the attack of something deeper, far more sinister than just people or politics. Even his best friend if I may assume that Peter was his best friend, tries to dissuade him from going to the cross and suffering, to which Jesus says, get behind me, who? He understands who's behind this voice. It's not just Peter. Somebody else is speaking through him. And then at the, at the, at the very end, we're told that the leaders conspired together to kill the Prince of Glory. Did they even understand that they were part of a a grand satanic conspiracy when Caiaphas and the high priests brought in false witnesses, when Pilate gave permission and King Herod did, did his part in the execution of Jesus. It wasn't just people. It wasn't just politics. It wasn't just jealous leaders. It was the dragon it was this satanic person. This, talk about a conspiracy. To become part of a conspiracy to kill the Messiah and not even know you're part of it. That's cunning. <laughs> so in a sense, you could say that the dragon did consume the child. Killed him on a cross, right? And you can only imagine in that moment, I, he thought he had won the day. But his great victory turned out to be, of course, his greatest defeat, correct? Because in the killing of Jesus at approximately 33 years of age, after he lived a perfectly righteous life, sin was atoned for. His people pardoned once for all, and through resurrection, the chains of death broken, so that what seemed like a great victory on the part of the dragon became his greatest defeat. Through death, through blood, through cross, the dragon was defeated. And that, of course, is what the text goes on to say. 
that she gave birth so that when she, bore, uh, when, when she bore her son, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and, and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she was placed. Uh, she had a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. His worst fear, the dragon's worst fear, came to be. He rose from the dead, and he was taken up to the throne of God, where now he rules over the dragon. So, round one, dragon versus Christ. The dragon loses. But it's important, I think, critical to the message of Revelation, is to understand how the dragon was beaten. He wasn't beaten by fire and sword, a.k.a. Hercules. He was defeated by the weakness of suffering, sacrifice, and death. Wait, the dragon slayer slayed the dragon by dying? Precisely! Who slays the dragon by dying? God outwitted the dragon precisely by dying and suffering in the place of sinful people. So that's round one. Round two, the dragon versus Michael. War rose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Therein lies the, the great conspiracy, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. I don't know what angelic war looks like. You know, they don't fight with guns and swords and spears and bombs and tanks. So it's a matter of speculation to understand, like, what, what does a war look like between angels? What we do know is that angels are immensely powerful, and so whatever it is, it, it makes warfare on earth look like you're playing with Legos. I say that because what this tells us is that, is that we're part of, there, there, there are things, forces so much bigger than we are. They're at play. Of, of which what we see is but a tip of the iceberg. There's this cosmic struggle that's taking place, and we're part of it, but we're not everything. Again, you see this massive war, and of course, the focus isn't so much on the war as the result. The result is that the devil loses. He gets evicted, banished, cast out, exiled from heaven. And of course, heaven responds, as it does oftentimes in Revelation, with worship. They start praising the Lord. You start hearing some of the same lines as the hallelujah chorus again. Like the devil has been thrown down to earth. He's been exiled. He's been evicted from heaven. He no longer has a place there. It's part of the result. But there's this line in here that talks about what Christians experience on earth as the dragon has been thrown down. And realize Christians too, believers, conquer. And they, verse 11, have conquered him. Who? The dragon. They have conquered him by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. How do you conquer a dragon? You and me. Not by ourselves. 
Not with our own blood, but in the same way Jesus did. We conquer when we trust in the blood of Christ. Our only pardon, our only secure place, our only stronghold is the blood of Jesus Christ, through whom we have forgiveness and we have the promise of eternal life. But also the word of their testimony, which I understand to be basically testifying to the work of Jesus Christ. That is the message of the gospel. It, it doesn't mention swords or spears. It doesn't mention protests or ballots. Not that any of those things are necessarily bad. But the primary means by which God's people, us, if you want to say it like Paul does, trample the serpent, it's by trusting in the blood of Christ, proclaiming the blood of Christ, and then being willing to sacrifice your life if need be. That's the part. For they love not their lives, even to death. Jesus won by dying. Many of the early church members won by dying. There's a reason why the church father from the second century by the name of Tertullian said that the seed of, or excuse me, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You kill Christians or you cause Christians to suffer, and guess what? It's going to spread. In the same way that Jesus overcame the dragon through his own blood. But for those on the earth who are not believers, who are not covered by the blood, there's this word of warning. Woe to you, O sea, or O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Like someone who knows that they just missed a perfect golf ball and throws their club because they're mad because they lost the game. That is the sense that he knows he's already lost, and so he's throwing a temper tantrum. It's like he's down on earth, and woe to the world of unbelievers. So round one, and let me just say that I believe these build on each other. Round two, where the dra dragon versus um, Michael ends in exile is because, precisely because round two was based on round one where Jesus won the day. The turning point, not only on earth but in heaven, is the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's a cosmic event. Which brings us to round three. The dragon versus the woman. And as I tried to articulate, I believe this woman is the people of God in our time, that's us. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nursed for a time and times and half a time. And that's synonymous with 1,260 days. Um, the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood, but the earth came to help the woman. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. And the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the, sea, on the, on the sand of the sea. Here, this furious pursuit of the woman, of the people of God. And two things just to note before I conclude with some takeaways. This whole into the wilderness business, you know, like, again, we're, this is symbolic language. He's telling the story of God preserving his people 
through Exodus. There was another king that slaughtered a bunch of children too. You know his name, his name's Pharaoh. Could it be another head of the dragon that raised itself up to oppose and massacre God's people? And where did God take or lead his people Israel for, for safety and nourishment? Through the Red Sea and out into the wilderness, where daily they received manna and they received water from the rock. So he's telling the story of God's preservation of his people through the language of Exodus. Or there are points in, in, in the Exodus where there were enemies of God and the earth opened up and swallowed them. The, the point of this is to say that God will preserve his people spiritually from the evil one. Which is why we who hold to the testimony of Jesus do not need to fear him. Because God will preserve his people every time. Even the eagle, eagle's wings, God told the people of Israel, I saved you on eagle's wings. It's just a reference. We don't need to fear, but at the same time, we need to see. We need to have eyes to see what's, in fact, going on. The second thing to notice, again, is he's speaking of Christian people. They're those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony. Hold to the testimony is a way of talking about faith, and the earlier part, a way of talking about obedience. One of the ways you know that you have faith is that you obey. Anytime you divide those things, Obedience and faith, you don't have faith. Faith has fruit. No fruit, no faith. There's a good kind of a, a point of self-analysis. All right, Lord, am I trusting in the blood of Christ and am I living the blood of Christ? That's who's in view here. So you have three rounds, and each one the devil loses. He loses to the Christ child, he loses to Michael the archangel, a powerful angel, and he fails at destroying God's people because God preserves them. So what do we take away from this? I'll be short. One, I think we can expect hostility to our faith from governing powers. We can expect hostility to our faith from governing powers. We have lived in a time in which we have had governing powers that have been sympathetic and even supportive of our faith. Expect that to change. And be ready for that to change. Two, in recognizing that change, look behind the flesh and blood to see what's really behind it. Recognize that our ultimate foe is not physical, but spiritual. Our ultimate foe is not physical, it's spiritual. We're dealing with the dragon here, the heads of the dragon. We're dealing with someone who wants to destroy God's people. You notice history has always kind of revolved around, if you look at it, has always revolved around this struggle, a spiritual struggle between light and darkness. From the very beginning, it's the center of how history flows. Three, embrace the means of our victory, the blood of Jesus, the word of Jesus, and be willing to suffer like Jesus, taking up your cross and following him. That is to say, 
that if our ultimate foe is in fact spiritual, you cannot conquer him through physical means or through worldly means. The most powerful thing that we have is the blood of Christ, his resurrection, that's just the message of Jesus, willing to suffer for it and pray. Those are our, 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 our primary, if you want to call them, weapons of conquering darkness. And finally, just trust that God will supply everything necessary to persevere. Just like he did in the people of Israel, you know. You wake up in the morning and you, you wonder, are we going to have enough for tomorrow? And God showed up every time and he said, yeah, I'm, I'm about to give you manna for today and water for today. To trust that each day he'll supply the grace necessary for us to endure, continue on, to love the Lord, to love each other, to trust him, to know that we are headed to a, a good and wonderful place. Right now, church, we are the woman in the desert, in the wilderness. We're being provided for. We're living in the midst of the time, times, and half a time. But the day is coming when the wilderness will end. And we will be led into the promised land. Until then, we struggle in faith. And we have to have our eyes opened to the true nature of the enemy around us. Otherwise, we won't understand what's going on and we won't be able to make a difference in people's lives. Amen? Father, I do pray for uh, faith and I pray for your preserving power in our lives. I pray that you'd open our eyes to the unseen realities around us, um, that we would walk each day in faith and obedience to your word, that we would find our courage and our strength in your preserving grace in the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Enable us, Lord, in this day to stand and to proclaim and to live out the gospel of Christ. I pray this in his name. Amen.